Thank you, brother, for praying for us. I know I'm not behind the pulpit today. Uh, I guess it's PTSD from <laughs> the COVID days of preaching to an, an empty worship center, sanctuary area. And I asked our, uh, our tech guru, Gandalf, would it be possible to just record in my office today? And he graciously obliged. So I'm not standing in a big empty room all by myself. Before I begin preaching, just please know I miss you today. I so wish I could see each of your precious faces, and I look forward to seeing you next week. I would invite you today to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. Romans chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. We have been in a series together in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatian churches. So next week, we're going back there. But today is a special day. Perhaps some of you know, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. This is a day which has been set aside as a moment for us to remember and appreciate life. And God, as we believe, as the author of all life, this is this moment where we can honor him and say thank you for life and to consider the implications of what it means to believe in God as the author of life, to believe in life as intrinsically valuable, and also what it means for us in our time. What does it mean for you and me to stand and believe for life here in 2024? This morning's message is titled Ground War. Ground War. And I want to talk with you about a war that has been waged since the beginning. In fact, many of you are reading through the Bible and you just read through Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And that is, we know, is the temptation narrative. And that is where the ground war, the war for human souls, the war for this world, the war for the kingdom of God was articulated in Genesis 3. We're going to look at it from and through the angle of Romans 16, 19 through 20. But I want to just mention to you real quick why I titled this Ground War. In fact, popularly in history, if you were to just type in Ground War into the encyclopedia, you would find quickly that one of the most famous Ground Wars in history, actually it took place in my lifetime. I'm a child of the 80s. And in the early 90s, one of the largest ground wars in history took place in the Middle East. Some of you are old enough to remember this well. Some of you watching this video were there on the ground serving your country abroad during the Persian Gulf War and conflict. On February 22nd, 1991, the United States President George H.W. Bush set a deadline of noon the following day for the Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein, to withdraw his military forces from neighboring Kuwait. This comes from the encyclopedia, by the way. By this time, the US-led coalition had been pounding military targets in Iraq and Kuwait from the air for nearly six weeks. Though the air war had taken a severe toll on Iraqi forces, Hussein still refused to withdraw, and he also promised to cause major damage 
to the coalition troops if they attacked on the ground. And he had reason to be confident. Saddam Hussein at the time in Iraq boasted the fourth largest army in the world. Thousands of tanks, thousands of armored vehicles, thousands upon thousands of troops, and he was not going to be stopped. However, with allied forces in place, the coalition leaders that were facing Saddam during that time launched one of the largest ground wars in human history. These numbers are staggering. Staggering. The coalition ground forces consisted of 700,000 soldiers from 21 different countries. The majority of these soldiers, approximately 425,000, came from the United States alone. The coalition forces included over 100 warships in the Persian Gulf, nearly 2,000 warplanes available for combat missions, and they faced roughly 545,000 Iraqi troops that were dug in in defensive lines there in the Kuwaiti border. Coalition leaders launched the ground war at 4 a.m. local time, February the 24th, and the war began and was over in 100 hours. The, one of the largest ground wars in history only lasted 100 hours. Now, we call it a ground war because the efforts of that war were focused at this moment on the ground. The air bombardment had taken place. All of these things that bombs and missiles falling from the sky and missiles being launched from sea, However, the ground war, the grit, and the grind of human on human, whether using tanks or armored vehicles, was taking place. It's where the grind of the battle would take place. The ground war mentioned in the Bible, the war for humanity, takes place right here on the earth. And we read about it from the beginning. I want to read to you Romans chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. Notice it says this, Paul is speaking to the Roman church. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We see here Paul referencing this whole idea that someone, specifically here, the church, is going to crush Satan underneath their feet. That God is going to specifically use, here he's telling the Roman church, to crush Satan under their feet. What does that reference? That references the original ground war that we read about in Genesis 3.15. You've heard me talk about this before. In fact, before I read Genesis 3.15, here's our main statement. There has been a ground war against those in the womb from the start. There has been a ground war against those in the womb from the start. And that started in Genesis chapter 3. The first principle is this today. The original ground war was announced in Genesis 3.15. The original ground war was announced in Genesis 3.15. Let me begin by reading Genesis 3.13, and I will culminate in Genesis 
The word of our God says this, and this is after Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden and were being confronted by God. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Other translations say crush. This is that original ground war, the war announced from Genesis 3.15. It is the war on the offspring, the war on the womb, or as other translations say, the war on the seed. What is this all about? Well, the ground war announced in Genesis 3.15 is not about spoils and dirt. It's not about spoils and dirt. So many battles which have been fought through human history have to do with the spoils of war and trying to capture the dirt of another nation or another people that you might call that land your own. But that is not what this ground war is about. The Genesis 3.15 ground war, what theologians in Latin call the Proto-Evangelium, which is first gospel, the, the original ground war is not about spoils and dirt. The ground war announced in Genesis 3.15 is about sons and daughters. It's about sons and daughters. The ground war, that war mentioned between her offspring and your offspring, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, it is the children, the descendants of both, that is what the war concerns. It's not about spoils and dirt. It's about sons and daughters. And ultimately, and most importantly, especially for us as Christians, the ground war announced in Genesis 3.15 is ultimately about the Savior. Paul makes wastes no time pointing to this in Galatians. Also, you see it referenced throughout the New Testament sometimes directly, others indirectly, that Jesus is the fulfillment as this offspring that came to destroy the works of the devil. The original ground war was announced in Genesis 3.15. This is a ground war of good versus evil, light versus darkness, the devil versus humanity, the devil's war on the sons and daughters of God and that he was going to do his best to stomp out the good thing that God was doing in humanity, and he was going to do his best to snuff out their offspring, and ultimately to try to snuff out the capital O offspring, which points to none other Jesus. Friends, there's been a war on the womb found throughout scripture. You can see it when Pharaoh ordered the death of all the male babies in Egypt. You can read about this tragic tale and story from history in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. I'll read it to you today. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, 
when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh sought to kill the babies of Israel there in Egypt. Why a war on babies? Well, the war on babies are because of whom babies grow up to be. According to Pharaoh, he was afraid of what these babies would become, so he wanted to destroy them in the womb. Also, I'm reminded of Herod the Great, how he murdered the babies around Bethlehem when he learned from the wise men. Many of us looked at this at Christmas just here recently, when he learned that the wise men had tricked him and returned to the east by another path. King Herod, upon hearing this, ordered that all the male babies surrounding Bethlehem to be destroyed under the age of two. Matthew chapter two and verse 16 through 18 says this, when Herod, or then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that they had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Revelation actually encapsulates this in apocalyptic language in Revelation chapter 12, verses one through five. It says, and a great sign appeared in the heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign in heaven, behold a great red dragon, think serpent, think the devil, with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what's interesting, when we compare Revelation 12 to Matthew chapter two, we see the perspective from heaven and the perspective of earth. In Matthew chapter two, Herod was trying to kill all of the babies in order to protect his throne. But in Revelation chapter 12, regarding the same story of Herod's destruction of the babies in Bethlehem, 
we learn that it was none other than the great dragon, Satan himself, in the unseen places seeking to wipe out the seed of God. This reminds us that these battles against the womb are never just about babies. This battle on life is intrinsically and inseparably, inseparably connected to the unseen world. This battle concerning life has to do with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and the devil is not going to go down without a fight. When we talk about a battle for life in the womb, we are literally considering a battle with the devil himself because he has hated life in the womb and has been the sworn enemy of the offspring of humanity from the very beginning. So that leads me to a question. What is life in the womb? What is life in the womb? Well, several things. I want to read to you two particular passages that likely you know, but Jeremiah chapter one, four through five, notice what the Lord says to the prophet Jeremiah. In verses four through five, Jeremiah writes, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Also, I want to read to you Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Reading from the psalmist, for you formed my inward parts. This is the psalmist speaking to God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What is life in the womb? First, life in the womb is a personal project. Life in the womb is a personal project. And if you can see the notes on the screen, notice I have capitalized the P on personal because life in the womb is God's project. I want you to refer back and listen to Jeremiah 1.4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb. Now notice, this is Jeremiah. This is not Adam. This is not Adam being formed of the dust of the ground in Genesis chapter two. This is Jeremiah being formed inside of his mother's womb. And God is saying it is his personal project. God is personally the one as the sovereign creator, the father of all creation. It is God who is stitching and knitting together the baby in the womb. Life in the womb is a capital P personal project. Notice that Psalm 149 verse 16, it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is God who brings forth life in the womb. Yes, we know life springs forth biologically when the seed of man and the egg of woman come together and they make new life, but the scripture is very clear. This is God's personal project. 
Each, each person is a personal project for our divine creator. I know you've heard me talk about it before, but whether you might be sitting at the table or in the living room right now with your children, I want each of you to look at your thumbs. I'm looking at mine right now. Look at your thumbs. I want you to observe your thumbprint as you see it right there. That is an original. Did you know there is not another thumbprint like yours in the world? You are an original. Nobody is just like you because you are God's personal project and he began working on you when you were itsy bitsy inside of your mother's womb. We learned what life is in Jeremiah 1 and Psalm 139, that life is a personal project by God himself. Also, life in the womb is a person. Life in the womb is a person. That means those tiny little zygotes, those tiny little embryos, even in the early stages. Notice what the scripture says that again in Jeremiah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I want you to think about that. Before God even began forming the baby in the womb, that means before the egg and the sperm ever came together, God knew and knows that that human life is coming. It is not just his personal project, human life from conception, you all, from the moment of conception. Human life is a person. It's a person, and God has made you a person, and you were an itsy-bitsy person. You're not the person like you are right now. But again, listen, you need to understand this. When we think about what life is inside the womb, we often think about embryos. That's what we call little bitty babies in the womb, an embryo. But I want you to understand, everyone watching this, you did not come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. You did not come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. And Jeremiah chapter one, it says that before that even happened, God knew you. You are a personal project of God himself. And that even at conception, that tiny, tiny, tiny embryo is already in the eyes of God, a person. It's already a human being. You say, well, it's a little human being. It's an embryonic human being. Yes, but nonetheless, it's a human being. And the scripture says that from the beginning, God already knew you. The scripture, when it talks about life, it calls life not just a personal project of God himself, but life in the womb is a person. Not only that, Life in the womb is planned. Life in the womb is planned. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see two things. Let's look back in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. Notice he says, Before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. God is talking to Jeremiah and he is saying, Listen, before you ever came into this world through birth, when you were already in your mother's womb as a tiny, tiny, tiny little embryonic human being. Listen, I already had plans for you, Jeremiah, 
and I had plans for you to use you and go out to be a prophet to the nations. Listen to Psalm 139, 16. Notice it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. When you were not even, you were not even put together in a recognizable way. I'm, I'm gonna put on the screen right now. You're going to see a picture of an eight week year old, excuse me, an eight week old human embryo in the womb. You can already see its head, its eyes, you can see, I shouldn't say it, it's a him or a her. You can see little hands beginning to form. You can see legs. You can see this little person coming together. And that's just eight weeks, just eight weeks from conception. And you can already see that. And there's so much more I could talk about of what life looks like younger than eight weeks in the womb. But here's what I want you to see. We learn from this that every life in the womb is planned. I want everybody to look at me and watching the screen, look at me. In heaven, there is no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. There is absolutely no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. There are no accidents when it comes to life. God and God alone is the author of life. And we learn from Jeremiah, we learn from the psalmist that God has plans even for us, plans even when we're that tiny, tiny embryo inside of our mother. Not only what is life, it's a personal project by God himself. Not only life in the womb is a person itself, but also life in the womb is planned. When you're talking about babies inside of their mommies, there is no unplanned pregnancy. Heaven rules in this regard. Every life in the womb is a project of heaven and heaven has plans for that life. There are no accidents which take place in the womb. But not only are there no accidents when it comes to what takes place in the womb, hopefully you began to see through this scripture of looking together that what the word of God talks about when it talks about life in the womb, I want it to lead us now to a question. Not only what is life in the womb, but what can we do here? It's Sanctity of Life Sunday here in the year 2024. What can you and I do right here where we are in our homes, with our families, in our church, here in Tupelo, Mississippi, or Portland, Oregon, wherever you are, what can we do right where we are? And there are several things that I want to share with you. First of all, when we talk about life in the womb, please don't miss what I'm about to say. We are talking about a commitment to life, and it is fundamentally not political. It is fundamentally not political. It is fundamentally human. Human life 
is not about politics. As soon as you talk about life and choice and you mention the word abortion, immediately politics starts to churn its wheels and politics start, the political argument begins. And I am saying, as the people of God, we cannot make the fundamental issue a political issue. Human life is God's life, and human life is fundamentally not a political issue. It is a human issue, and that is where we must keep this. I'm reminded when in 2014, my wife and I had just experienced earlier that year our fourth and final, thank God, miscarriage. And now we were expecting again. It was my son to be born, Judah. And it was one of the early ultrasounds that we faced with him. It was probably, I want to say, about 10 weeks along, if I can remember correctly. And we went in to visit the, the doctor, and they used a Doppler uh, to try to find a heartbeat. And searching all over my, my wife's uh, uh, early um, expectant belly, they were unable to find a heartbeat. I will not forget that moment. Friends, we had already experienced four miscarriages and immediately my heart sank and I thought, oh my gosh, here we go again. My precious wife and her broken heart. And I just began to say, God, please have mercy on us. We were then escorted to the ultrasound room and the doctor came in and they began to do an ultrasound on my precious bride. And I never will forget this sight. As soon as the ultrasound machine touched my wife, the image that came on the screen was my little son inside of my beautiful wife. And as soon as he appeared on the screen, before we could even see a heartbeat, you could see his little arm and he reached up his fist just like that and almost as if to wave to mom and dad. And right there through the ultrasound, I got to see my little boy wave at me. He was alive. I remember the doctor said, well, I guess we don't have to check for a heartbeat. We know he is doing okay. And it was from that moment that we named him Judah because it was at that moment that we praised the Lord. His name means praise. And we gave God praise for giving us life in the womb. Friends, life, it's not political. Judah is not about politics. He's my son. Judah's a human being. You're a human being. When you talk about human life, you are talking about a person. When you talk about embryonic life, you're talking about a person. Remember, you and I didn't come from embryos. We once were an embryo. You're talking about a fellow citizen of this world. You're talking about another person. And that is not political. That is so much deeper than politics. A commitment to life is fundamentally not political. Don't believe anyone who tells you that it's just politics. Oh, it's not. Life is not political. Life is fundamentally human. So 
What can we do? First, we need to remember that a commitment to life is fundamentally not political. It's fundamentally human. Second, we need to celebrate life wherever it is found. We need to celebrate life wherever it is found. First Baptist Church, I want you to hear my heart in this. Whenever we learn of someone becoming expectant, we need to celebrate that. Whether that is in the, 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 the blessed arrangement of a man and a wife and Christian families and a Christian home, amen, we celebrate that. But you know what? Life that's found elsewhere, we need to celebrate that too. That means that we as the people of God, we celebrate life no matter where it's found. That doesn't mean that we give approval and thumbs up to the situations that may have produced the life, but we acknowledge that God is the author of life. So that means if it's a middle school girl or a high school girl that's expecting a baby, we're going to celebrate life. That means if someone has become expectant from somebody who's not their husband, again, we don't approve of relationships outside of marriage, but you know what? We're going to celebrate life. That means that all around us in the community, that we need to celebrate life and help young mothers especially who are in need to celebrate life. We need to celebrate life wherever it is found, regardless of how it got here. Remember, it is God and God alone is the author of life. Therefore, as his people, we celebrate the handiwork of God. And we need to be about life. We need to be about life and celebrate it where it is found. Also, even though it's fundamentally not political, we do not need to ignore that there is a political element to this situation. We should be prayerful that God would use the leaders in our nation, in our state, and in our municipality, that God would use our leaders to end abortion, that God would use our leaders to end abortion. Friends, abortion takes innocent human life inside of the womb. By the way, I know right now there are women, some of you I've talked to here in our church, you're watching this right now and you have had an abortion at some point in your life or you thought about having it and were not able to get one. I want you to focus in on your pastor right now. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. First, I want you to know that I is your pastor and I want you to know that I have the authority to speak for our church here, that we as First Baptist Church, we love you. We love you and we do not hold your past against you. Friends, this is the gospel. There is only one kind of Christian that exists and that is a saved one. And we are all saved from something. And we're all being saved from something. And friends, First Baptist Church of Tupelo, especially as long as I'm the pastor, we are not going to judge people for their past sins. We are going to point them to the love of Christ and welcome them into the family and know this, that where sin did abound, there does grace all the more abound. It is a dead end road when we start judging people. Friends, I want you to know 
that if you've had an abortion, I don't judge you. I'm not going to back down for a moment that I believe that life starts from conception and also to take life in the womb is to end human life and that is wrong and we should not do that. But I want you to know Jesus came and I know situations are hard. Andrea and I faced an unthinkable situation in 2019 when Andrea was expecting our final child, Peter, uh, our sixth child, and four days later was diagnosed with an aggressive kind of cancer that would have been fed by the hormones that increased during her pregnancy. I know, not as a woman, but as a husband, Andrea knows what it's like to sit in that chair and have to ponder what is best to do. By God's grace, we chose life. And I don't want to say we, she chose life by God's grace. And I got to stand there and encourage and to admire that amazing thing that she did and gave life to our son who is now three years old and absolutely full of life, probably way too full of it at this point. But nonetheless, we give God thanks for that. All of that to say, we don't judge you. We don't judge you. And I want you to know Jesus loves you, is ready to forgive you if you've never experienced his forgiveness, and wants you to know you are not second class at First Baptist Church. We love you and want you here. With that said, we should be prayerful, though, that abortion should end. You could say, well, gosh, Pastor Matt, what could we possibly do? It's just us here in Mississippi. What could we possibly do to end abortion? In 2022, folks, Dobbs versus Jackson Women Health Organization overturned 49 years of Roe v. Wade. You and I both know it. Mississippi always seems to be last in every category. We always get blamed as being, you know, bringing up the tail end in every category. You and I know that's not true. This is a blessed place to live. But did you know that God used Mississippi, Mississippi, to overturn Roe v. Wade? Friends, it's amazing what can happen. Also, not only that, let me give you another one. You may not know this, but American history was made in 1995 through the Dickey Wicker Amendment. The Dickey Wicker Amendment. Now you say, what is the Dickey Wicker Amendment? Well, in 1995, I'm actually old enough to remember this conversation. Our conversation in our country at that time was concerning in vitro fertilization and the creation of embryos for the purpose of embryonic stem cell research. And prior to the Dickey Wicker Amendment, it was not against the law to create embryos for the sole purpose of harvesting embryonic stem cells, essentially creating babies in order to destroy them and to use them as harvesting their stem cell research. The Dickey Wicker Amendment in 1995 outlawed that and is still the law to this day. J. Dickey of Arkansas, Congressman J. Dickey of Arkansas, and more importantly to me personally, because he's my friend and he is your fellow member of First Baptist Church of Tupelo, now Senator, but at time Congressman Roger Wicker, co-authored this bill. And it is still the law to this day that protects embryonic human life from being harvested for stem cell research. Friends, politics matters. 
politics matters. And if you're watching, thank you, Senator Wicker, for what you did almost now 30 years ago. And Lord willing, that will continue to stay the law of the land. Friends, it's things like this. We should be prayerful that God would use our leaders to end abortion. Also, we should refuse to concede an inch on the debate about life. Refuse to concede an inch on the debate about life. Friends, we can love those who have had an abortion. We can forgive those who have had an abortion. We can care for those and weep with those who have in, in, uh, endured or are a part of an unplanned pregnancy, but we don't have to concede an inch about life. Scott Klusentorf in his book, The Case for Life, a book I highly recommend, gives this syllogism, and I give it to you today. Here is our premise. Number one, it is intentionally, excuse me, let me say it again. It is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. That's premise one. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Premise three, the conclusion is therefore abortion is morally wrong, meaning it's wrong to kill innocent humans. Abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings, therefore abortion is morally wrong. It is morally wrong. You cannot take away the life of an embryo without taking away the life of a human. Because remember, you did not come from an embryo, you once were an embryo, and so was I. <sighs> Two more things. Human life matters wherever it's found. And what does that mean? That also, the human life of your pro-choice neighbors and your pro-choice so-called opponents, they matter to God too. We are not to demonize humanity. In fact, this is where politics can get so dangerous. Politics is about one word. It's about winning. But the kingdom of God is not about winning. The kingdom of God is about blessing. It's being blessed to be a blessing. Ephesians 6, 12 reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but a prince against principalities and powers and against rulers and authorities of the dark world. Friends, our battle is not against human beings. Our battle is not against those who hold a pro-choice position. Our battle is against the forces of darkness. And as I told you when I opened this sermon on ground war, it's been his intention from the beginning to stop life in the womb. To close this message out, I want you to consider a couple things. Number one, you are only here today because your mother chose life. I am only here today because my mother chose life. Don't let that escape you. Secondly, I want to close with this. Why does the enemy, why does the devil hate so vehemently babies? Why has there always been a war on the womb? What is his beef with babies? Why is it that the powers of darkness are always trying to destroy life in the womb and life in the crib? What is it with babies? And the answer is found where we began. In Romans chapter 16, in verse number 20. Notice what it says. 
it says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see that baby in the womb may to us just look like an embryonic human being, and it is. But to the devil, that embryonic human being is so much more than that. That embryonic human being is made in the image of God. And every human being that is conceived in this world and comes forth through birth is literally raising the flag of Genesis 3.15, the flag of the gospel and of the kingdom of God, which reminds the devil his time is short because the kingdom of God wins. The reason the devil hates babies is because every baby is like raising the flag for the kingdom of God. And it reminds him that his doom is sure and he can't stand it. And I would encourage each of you today to raise the flag of life. It is God who is the author. Don't demonize the other side. That's life made in the image of God too. But let us in our moment, right here in our moment, raise the flag for life. I'll close with a little bit of story and I'll be done. You all know that I'm a lover of fiction. And gosh, you know I love Lord of the Rings. In the second movie, Peter Jackson's portrayal of Lord of the Rings, there is a powerful moment at the end of the movie where the forces of good in the kingdom called Rohan have been backed into a corner in a place called Helm's Deep. And the forces of darkness, the orc army, has overrun them, and it looks like all is lost. And the king, named Theoden, realizes his fortress has fallen and his people are overrun. And he voices this, looking at the forces of darkness. What can men do against such reckless hate? And another character speaks up and says, you ride out and meet them. You ride out and meet them. I know sometimes in living in our times, it feels like the kingdom of God is not exactly the winning side. So what do we do? You raise the flag nonetheless. You ride out and you meet the enemy. The enemy's not another human being. It is the forces of darkness. We ride out knowing God has already won this fight. Let's let you and I and our children and our children after them stand for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that my mother chose life. I thank you for the people in our church. And Lord, I pray that no one who has had an abortion, who's listening to my voice, Lord, would experience any shame apart from your overwhelming grace. 
Lord, you point out our sins for the sole purpose of wanting to forgive us, to heal us and redeem us and use us. Lord, I pray you would use me and you would use our church, Lord, as a lighthouse for life, that we would stand for life right here in Tupelo, whether that's be through supporting organizations like New Beginnings through adoption, Lord, supporting Parkgate Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Tupelo, whether it's just being an aunt or a mom or a big sister or a friend to someone who now has an unexpected pregnancy. Maybe it's being a dad to hold your little girl's hand and say, it's okay, we're gonna get through this. Lord, will you use us to champion life? I pray for our nation. Lord, I am grieved at the untold millions of babies that have lost their lives in America because of abortion. Lord, would you use your people to change our future so that this can forever be in the past? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.